Welcome to the No Ideas original podcast featuring Shannon, Rob, and Ken. What's up, y'all? How y'all doing? Good. No one next next Monday, everybody. We need you to stream the No Ideas original podcast debut project, the curation available on all streaming platforms. And if you haven't already, make sure you stream Big Facts No Ideas original featuring Donnie Midnight, produced by Gritty Tracks, a real banger. A real banger. I told you I got a lot, a lot of good feedback about that track. As you should, man. That track is a dope track, man. And we paired the we paired the right two together with Donnie and Gray, so that came out pretty dope. Man. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorites. That's a fact. Yo, so tonight we're fortunate enough to have a pioneer, a trailblazer, um, big time contributor to West Coast hip hop, Mr. Michael Calfani, aka. Disco Daddy. Daddy. Disco Daddy. How you guys doing? First to a lot in terms of hip hop history in the West Coast. We good, we good. How are you? Uh, hold on. Mm-hmm. Matt. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'll meet you. I'm, I'm at, uh, doing a radio interview. Uh, give me about half an hour. All right. Sorry, guys, got a lot going on. No problem. Listen, you, he's a busy man, bro. He's a busy are you man. Cur- you currently in California? Yeah, LA. Are you in LA and you dress like that? What's the temperature in LA? No, this morning, if you believe me. It's cold. <laughs> oh, wow. In LA early in the morning, you can dress just like this. You know, like you right? By this time, it starts getting a little warm, you know what I'm saying? But I got the sunroof open. Okay, so. okay, okay. All right, so you're, you're originally from New York, though. What took you to California? How'd you find yourself um, going into the service? Because I read somewhere that you were in the Air Force. Air Force veteran, yeah, Vietnam veteran. Uh, basically, the draft was on. They were drafting brothers, everybody, but only the Army and Marines were drafting. Maybe in the Air Force, these services, they don't draft. You have to still pass the intelligence tests. Right. So I was... I turned 18, my draft number was coming up, and just like everybody else uh, at the time, uh, friends school in the gang, they just became Muslims because the Air Force during the Vietnam era or in no branch of the service would accept black Muslims. That was one way to get around being drafted <laughs> and get into going into the military. So a lot of entertainers during that period, and I'm not saying they're uh, beliefs are false or anything like that. But a lot of people who were draft age in the late 60s and whatever, when brothers especially, when they found out that that was a way to get out without trouble and going to prison. But mm-hmm. Ali, they did not want Muslims. Muhammad saved them because they tried to draft him. But y'all are young, you don't remember that period, but he lost his boxing title. That's right. Everything he had fought for in 1967, and they stripped him and convicted him of uh, not wanting to serve his country. And he had applied for for conscientious objector status, which did not work for a black man, obviously, because they still wanted him to go in. It was one way to put down this rising, uh, he was the biggest symbol besides Malcolm X of the power going on, the power. struggle going on between us and the system and uh, once he the Supreme Court said he could um, could not be forced to join the military if you have conscious objection of killing or murder or whatever 
it is. He set the stage for brothers. Anybody after 1967, wow. any black man, all you had to do was say, I'm a black Muslim, even if you weren't, that you would follow Elijah Muhammad. And it didn't wow. matter. Uh, you see what I'm saying? Uh, uh, it, it mattered if you were just a Muslim. That's not crazy. Elijah Muhammad, you could still get into the military. Yeah. They made a distinction. Mm. Okay, what I'm saying? If you were a black Muslim, <laughs> they didn't want you. You see what I'm saying? Because they, they didn't want the ideology to be spread among blacks in the military. Uh, you yeah. see what I'm saying? There are a lot of blacks who come from the South, country, areas. Right. don't know nothing about what was going on in the big cities except what they might have watched on the news. But right. they were right mentally for Muslim teachings because all blacks were suffering during that period. So they didn't want us in the military. I hate to get off that point, but that's a historical point I have to mention. So I went in basically not to get drafted. And I went down to join the Navy. Before, first of all, when you're drafted, you go straight to the front line. That brother's coming back with no legs, no arms. Yeah. Into wow. the community. Who wants that? So, and then you hear the story. So I, I went down, the Navy office was closed, Air Force office was open across the street. So you have to take the test. I said, I'll take it right now. My mom was here. I sat down and passed the Air Force entrance exam right there. And they mm. said, you can leave in two weeks. And that's how I ended up into the, uh, in the United States Air Force, June 1969. Mm. Uh, coming out here, I got out the Air Force. I went through a racial thing. I did two years out of four years, supposed to be four. But I got involved in racism. Uh, stuff which would be in my book, Whatever Happened at Disco Daddy. So I was discharged honorably, but I wanted to come out to California. I had seen all these postcards, and the girls and the beaches and the palm trees and everything. I said, I got to get out there. Never could get stationed. Uh, I put in for the Western region, dream sheet that you fill out when you're in the basic, which you dream of where you want to go in the world, mm -hmm. Hawaii, Thailand, whatever. And you may or may not get what you put on your dream sheet. Right. <laughs> so I put the Western region and I got that, but I was sent to Montana, which is oh, oh. Great Falls, Montana. <laughs> Damn, bro. Oh. We used to drive across the border to Canada. Those girls up there love black folks. Yeah. It was the first time I met white people who were not white, if you can understand what I mean. Mm -hmm. First time yeah, being yeah. out of the country, I guess it would be the same as went to France or England or something like that. They mm -hmm. view us differently. And the vibes are different than they are between blacks and American whites. I, I was going through a department store. We had our five of us. We had our uniforms on, and white girl. I love all girls, no matter what color. Vanessa <laughs> case, white girl. She said, "Oh, you guys from the United States? Oh, we hear so much about the the, the struggle that you guys are going on. Here's my phone number." Call me tonight, and I have some girls. How many of y'all want to? I have some <laughs> girls, just like that. Don't know us from him, but we're black and uh, <laughs> we just accepted. So every two weeks, I was in Calgary, Alberta province. Messed around and went AWOL, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's how I got out. Well, that, that, that's something, man, because to, to, to think, you know, back then, coming out of the service, then in the 70s, and when you gave me that little history you note know, about, um, about Ali, it made me think of John Edgar Hoover saying there'll never be the rise of a black messiah. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, why they was doing that and why they want no, no black people in the service because they want nobody to spread their knowledge. Okay. But taking right. that, taking you going to the service, you ended up 
in California. What led you into hip hop? Well, actually, I went home, I got discharged, I went back home. When you've been in the military, you travel around, even a place like New York seems small, all of a sudden it's crowded. So I just said to myself, the hip hop hadn't been invented, I got out, I got out in the seventies. So hip hop hadn't been invented yet. Right. And it was not even uh, the park jams at that time when I left. But I came out here simply because I wanted, I was trained as an actor, a theater actor. And I wanted, they were producing all those black uh, cult films, uh, uh, you know, black Jeff Hef, and Parton yeah. Comes to Harlem, all those cult films. Yeah. So I, I left and I came out here. But I, I, I lived in San Francisco for a year. It was a beautiful city, beautiful city. But nothing happened. And I was working at uh, Jack in the Box. So uh, I had friends who were actors who lived in LA. And I said, I got to come down there. So in 73, I came down here and I was staying with a friend of mine, uh, Lincoln Kilpatrick, his, his son and I, Eric Kilpatrick, grew up together. But Lincoln Kilpatrick was the first black uh, co-star with Charleston Heston of Soylent Green and uh, what was the other? Uh, Planet of the, no, not Planet of the Apes. It was Soylent Green and it was another one. But Lincoln Kilpatrick was a black sidekick, which was the first in the movies. Bill Cosby was the first on TV, okay? Um, black sidekick to a white lead. But uh, Lincoln Kilpatrick, I stayed with them. And I, I, I was over at my cousin's house, her name is Sheila, and a girlfriend of hers, Thelma Davis Martin, came over to the house in 1973, saying, we dance on Soul Train, I'm sleeping on the floor. We dance on Soul Train, y'all wanna, you wanna come with us? Nice. <laughs> so I got up, and I got in first as a guest, and I was loving the vibe, I think the OJs, that night. You know, you're right next to them. They come and sit and talk to you in between breaks and stuff. But two weeks later, I'm at the Proud Bird restaurant in Inglewood, and Pam Brown and Dick Griffey, who were talent coordinators for the show, used to go out to parties and clubs. And that's how they found a lot of the dancers who ended up in the original 70s Soul Train uh, gang. Uh, there was no additions. You either got in as a guest or you were picked by Pam Brown. And that's how I became a member officially of the Soul Train Gang. Okay, 1973, uh, Shabadoo, Rerun, all those cats, they had just formed the Lockers. And wow. they were leaving, yeah, they were leaving the show, so I barely saw them. They would just come back and do guest appearances. They were doing um, shows all over the world. And uh, that started my career off. Uh, in fact, the day that I, I've been in California six months, and the day I got on Soldier, and I said, God is showing me this is the place it's supposed to be. And <laughs> it, it was like a sign. It was a sign, and I was walking right. down the yellow brick road. Could never imagine, still, there was no hip hop. I mean, it right. was just beginning in 73 when I'm on Soul Train when Cool Herc did his thing. I was one of the stars on the West Coast of the longest running show in the history of television. Nice. So, so, so that West Coast hip hop basically starts there, as far as I'm concerned, because mm -hmm. once um, I, I did that and I auditioned, well, yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself. In '73, I did that. From '73 to '74, I was very busy. Quincy Jones had started a workshop in '74 called the Quincy Jones Workshop. And that's a story that has to be told. Yet yeah, it was for singers and musicians. Brothers Johnson came out. 
And uh, uh, some of the right. other background singers that Quincy used on his albums during that period from 74 to 78. Okay, so that's the story we based at Inner City Culture Center. I did a radio program on WPLO called Who Cares? Uh, black Americans, Black uh, Blacks in Media. I forget the name, but the, the, the slogan that they use. But, but I did a, a midnight program called Who Cares, where I interviewed celebrities from Betty Wright to Squirrel, from Pneumatics to Eddie Kendricks at the Total Experience nightclub. In fact, after I did my first interview with Eddie Kendricks and the manager of the club was there, the owner actually, uh, Mr. Simmons, who started Total Experience Records, Gap Band and all those cats later on, yeah. he first he owned the nightclub, okay? And he watched me do the interview. Since you can come back every week and do interviews, whoever was there. And that's how I started interviewing, uh, you know, I interviewed David uh, Ruffin and Eddie Country and got this full story of why they left Motown and everything, which never made the news at that time. So I got certain privy information because they opened up the fact that the fact that they was uh, individual artists, solo artists, they could do interviews and talk about themselves. So you yeah, was in the I'm, mix. You was in the mix of everything at that time. Yeah, <laughs> at the beginning, yes, I was. And I was getting records from all the record companies and stuff like that. That came later. Right. But uh, 76, uh, while I was doing all that kind of stuff, I was driving past a club called The Showcase on Crenshaw and had a sign outside saying DJ Warner. I had <laughs> never did that in a club, but I was majoring in radio and television broadcasting at City College, LACC, which at the time was the college to go to for radio and television broadcasting, okay? So I was used to the equipment. They had advanced equipment there, and this cat, uh, Gene Hardy, on the club, he bought all the stuff. I just didn't know how to turn the receiver on. <laughs> I could deal with the turntables, but I didn't know how to turn this in on. So it was the beginning of my career. I auditioned for him, and Frankie Crocker, who I grew up with watching, I mean, listen to W, not WBLS. Before that, there was the WWRL, the big RL, New York, That's where Frankie got famous. Okay, good evening, New York. This is the show to put more dips in your head, more cut in your stride, more cut in your stride, more glide in your stride. And if you don't dig it, you know you got a whole <laughs> Okay, Frankie Parker, my image of a DJ, Jocko, all of New York cats did rhymes. They didn't rap, but they, they all had rhymes that they had, you know, identified, right. you know, as Jocko, and, you know, they opened their shows with. So my image of a DJ is naturally to make up some rhymes. So I made up some rhymes, uh, welcome to the showcase. This is DJ Mike, I'm glad to see your face in the place. You know, there stuff you like that. And mm-hmm. cat said, I like you, you're different. He said, what you gonna call yourself? I said, well, my lady was pregnant at the time. I said, well, this is my first job in the disco. And I'm about to have my first baby. I'm going to call myself Disco Dan. <laughs> April 1976. At the Showcase Nightclub in Los Angeles on Friendship Boulevard. I made it the number one spot. And the security guards that worked there, their owner of the security guard company, looked at the success that I made it the number one. It was, was, again, in LA, they had teenage nightclubs. Huh. Yeah, 21 and under, 18 actually and under. No drinks. We had sodas, hot dogs, popcorn. We had full bars in the back, houses, another room in the back. All this kind of stuff. 
which for teenagers, black teenagers, they've never seen that like this. And then they had a hell of a DJ. <laughs> but anyway, I made it number one, and the security guard owner of the company decided he wanted to open up a club, and so he bought a building on 91st and West. And me and the guy who owns the showcase, which I made number one, this is 1977, a year after we opened, we were having problems because he wanted me to play more Donna Summer and more BGs and stuff like that. Now was a black. It was that disco. That was that disco vibe. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. So Donna Summers and all. Every now and then I would break out, but I was funking them to death. I could mix James Brown into Parliament Funkadelic and into Confunction, and you think it was one record. <laughs> That's the way it was funk disco DJs did it back then. You see right, what I'm right. saying? Mixing yeah. wasn't just a thing of 130 beats per minute like the white boys up in Hollywood, and you <laughs> can mix Donna Summer into the BGs and all of that. Mm -hmm. Like I say, I mix James Brown, Confunction, and whatever else was funky, you would be, think it was one long ass record. So mm. that's what Disco Daddy, between the little rhymes, then people would come and say, hey, make a rhyme for Scorpio, or make a rhyme for Libra. So I did little short rhymes. You know and what? Which distinguished me as that type of DJ. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when the guy hired me, he said, well, you can start next week. I'm at the Showcase One Weekend, which is the number one club, and I'm going into an unknown with a new owner, he's gonna pay me a hundred dollars a night though, which is fifty dollars more than I was getting at the other club, which mm -hmm. is nineteen seventy seven is some good money just yeah. for the weekend. So uh I was taking a chance, but I did the switch. The guy said, I'm gonna spend money, I'm gonna start advertising on you, I want you to go up and do the commercial, just write the commercial yourself. Right. So the first rap Los Angeles ever heard was Disco Daddy at the workshop on the radio actually. Hello out there, Disco Daddy here reminding you that every Friday and Saturday you'll be taking a mighty soulful ride on that funky workshop camel. Uh, his name is Clyde. Now Clyde has only one mission in life and that's to make sure that you get to Soulville before sunrise. So come on brother, I know you stepping strong and you sister put your red dress on. If you're looking for some action and your feet ain't flat, then the workshop disco baby, where it's at. That's the workshop disco, 91st <laughs> Western Avenue with LA, 1977. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, two years after that, Sugar Hill, well, I, first of all, I made that club the workshop number one. Six months later, <laughs> the showcase closed. <laughs> oh, wow. That was Ooh. the first instance in the 70s of club owners and people basically because the DJ business wasn't a real business, business mobile yet. But that was the first time people found out that if you have popular DJ, wherever you go, your people will follow. Right? Yeah, you know what? So, I, let me let me ask you this about the, um, the DJ stuff. So, I was thinking because I do remember a time where the DJs were basically the MCs. You know, they did yeah. all the all they, the exactly. talking. They were the, they were the original one. MCs. Yeah. Do, right. do you do right. you think the advent of the the MC per se is what changed? Um, or hindered the evolution of DJs as MCs? Because after no. a while, DJs put the mics down and it be just behind the scenes mixing and stuff like that. And it then became predominantly about somebody on, out on the forefront performing. It was a very interesting evolution. And you have to, as far as hip hop is concerned, and the model that we have with the DJs and the MCs and all that, you have to go back to DJ Hollywood in right. New York. My dude, I like Hollywood. Okay, when I interviewed Raheem, um, before he got, uh, not Naheem, uh, Kid Creole, 
before he got did the last interview with him before he got arrested. Last radio, I got that. Um, and he told me, he said, when, when Grandmaster Flash, when we started, he said, we took everything that we did on stage from DJ Holly. So the DJ with the rapping and uh, I mean with the, with, with the mixing and turntapes, DJ Hollywood did all that itself. Yeah. But the way it was set up, it was uh, uh, rapping over music. Right. Basically over the now, 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 Cool Herc had MCs. They rapped over the breakbeats. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a different. It's a difference. You see what I'm saying? And they didn't really rap the way we look at rapping. You see what now what we consider rapping. Again, uh, in the early days, from what they told me, they were doing nursery rhymes. Mm. Stylized mm-hmm. versions of Mary Had a Little Lamb. No basic stuff. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. stuff like that. Then the yeah. first person to actually sit down and write an original rap. Y'all know who that is? I'm going to put this. Let me ask y'all. <laughs> Chaz, right? No. 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 Melly Mel. Melly Mel. Message? Melly Mel was the first man to sit down and write a rap. Right. His brother was with him. Okay, Raheem um 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 uh, uh, Kid Creole was with him. And everybody is verified. He sat down one day and wrote lines out. And that changed the game. You see what I'm saying? Because then other people started. This is before record. Okay, this is the period before record. Again, and oh, I, I, I believe all of this because I've interviewed DJ Hollywood. I've interviewed, interviewed Coplo Rock. I interviewed everybody that I'm telling you because I wanted to know. This was back in 2016, 2017. Hip Hop, you don't stop the radio program I had. And my first show, I had MC Shara, first female MC, DJ yep. Hollywood. Uh, celebrated Shara Day and Gun Hill Project. Right, right, the other day. All right, so I got, I had never heard of her until 2013. I hadn't heard of Cool Herc until 2010. <laughs> wow. You see what I'm saying? This is how far the West Coast, we didn't always have the internet. Okay, you might have heard names and stuff like that, but for me to have any knowledge the way you guys have it of who Herc is and who MC Shyrock is, never right. made it to the West Coast. So my right. radio show really opened my eyes to what was going on, and even that there was a period, because remember, I left in 70. So in 73, the period before oh, yeah. began, I missed all of that. So I knew nothing about those DJs. I knew nothing about what was going on. Every now and then, we would get a record in the record pool. This is the new Spoonie G. Who's he? Ah, I love Brian. Yeah, yeah. See what I'm saying? No pictures, no media things let you know who he was or anything like that. The same with me when we got the Grandmaster Plastic. Okay, that's a group. But again, before 1982, there were no videos. MTV came along. It's a lot of history that changed the game and allowed uh, these groups to be seen for the first time instead of just heard. So a lot, me and Captain Rap, when we made our record, it was 81. We missed MTV by a year. Because MTV made stars out of mediocre rappers <laughs> because they were so hungry for content that if you had a video, you know, and they didn't even have HD or anything, but if you had a video, you got on MTV, and then especially once they started seeing the reaction uh, for for from hip hop, yeah, TV was made, to have those hip hop shows. That's what made Blondie, Park, Blondie, then, uh, Pat Benatar, oh, all, yeah. of them, all of them made them videos that made them blow up in the eighties. 
they blew up. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because now they had and they they had an audience who had heard the records on the radio but never seen them. So I, I missed that 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 period. But what happened was when Melly Mel wrote the first rack, the game became a thing of trying to out rap. That's where the battles start happening and stuff like that. You see what I'm saying? Because people were writing actually. There are no battles before written raps. Although hip hop existed and they were rappers. You see what I'm saying? It wasn't until there were enough rappers who writing original stuff and people responding and coming out to hear this group and these rappers. The, the, the style and everything was taken from DJ Hollywood with two turntables. The biggest yeah. battle back then, I think, was a lot of like Cold Crush and all of them. They had routines. Yeah. That, that they would that they would the whole with. production. Yeah. Yeah. They it had was. a whole routine together. That that's that's I that was what Master Cash. The thing was, they never made a record to actually because right. nobody knew this thing was gonna blow up like this. First of all, right. even some of the people involved thought, well, this is something we can cast in on because we've been doing it. You know, now they make a record, but they've been having car jams and an MC set up. So it was easy to transition to make it records, but the very fact of now his money and contracts, that was another game changer. You mm-hmm. see what I'm Because he wasn't no longer doing it for fun. You know what I'm saying? You're trying to get a recording contract, and there was a lot of shit that went down, he was stabbing in the back and all of that because behind this, the money starting to come in. And then yeah. with the money bags, only wanting certain types of raps, rappers to sign another thing. Because before the message, everything was about shake your booty party down. Or well, I'm the flyest, I'm the baddest, all the stuff that ever do. That kind of thing. You see what I'm saying? The ego tripping type of stuff. Once the message came out and it became clear that this music can be used for more than just uh, right. take your booty party down right. then it, it, it the whole thing intensified because it became a way to convey and speak to the, the of the, 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 the system and effects that was happening on black people mm-hmm. and right. people of color period okay right. what I'm saying what our life was like what our existence was like people never heard that and, and, I, and again to the street. yeah what, 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 what makes it sort of incredible is that now we accept all of that and don't really, because you had to be there to understand how revolutionary a song like that was. But and I, again, I, I, I get past myself. When I, when Rapper's Delight came out, I was a DJ at the workshop and I got one of the promo copies. And I said, man, I can do this. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Just like that, Light came on, I quit both my jobs. I was a DJ yeah. in California called Big Ben's. I interviewed Phyllis Hyman, Ray Parker Jr., Rufus, all these big stars at the record store. We have, you know, in-store things. I'd interview them sitting down at the table, they'd sign autographs. So I got to meet a lot of A&R people who was offered jobs in promotion, A&R, and all the right companies, and all that shit down, because I was loving being a DJ, number one, okay, in L.A. And so when that record came out, I quit my job, and I called 100 at the Carolina West. I would later beat Ice T. But but I called him. This is 79. I said, I'm rapping, man. Let me come through and do something. I called Dr. D up at the Speakeasy, which was a celebrity club owned by James Brown, who just died. I mean, Jim Brown, who just died. And uh, wow. I said, let me come through. So all my DJ friends who were in the record pool with me let me come to the club. And I was turning the clubs out. People had never seen a rapper. Mm. 
okay? They had never seen a rapper on the West Coast. This was a whole new ball game. So every club I went to, I turned it out, okay? And they just let me get Sometimes the club owners give me $50 or whatever, not rap for a few minutes. But I built the name up now as a DJ. Now it's just so daddy is rapping. So all the DJs who are rapping, they were, they, were, they were loving it. But as far as cutting a record, and hoping to get a record deal, the other thing that was happening is that if you weren't from New York back in those days, you weren't getting any airplay. Not even on your own turf. You see what I'm saying? So I had that you know, album that that yeah. Right, I had that albatross hanging around my neck. But again, I get ahead of myself. But I was rapping in all these different clubs. And then KGFJ in 1981, I did that for two years from 79 to 81. And KGFJ announced that they were going to have the first rap battle mm. at the Carolina West. And Did you I say KTMJ? KGFJ, AM. Okay. AM radio, KGFJ 1230. It was the station. People in Los Angeles grew up with KGFJ. And this then is later, before Greg Mack and K-Day came along years, a few years later. Uh, but yeah. in time, right, from 70, from the, from the 50s on up, the KGFJ was the only station for black people in LA. So anyway, they, they were giving the first rap battle. Someone there put down and $50. Because I've been winning rap battles all <laughs> over. I've been down there. And this guy got in the contest. We beat everybody, it's just me and him. We call ourselves Trey. <laughs> so he beat me the first week. And after all the shit I've been telling y'all I went through, I was devastated. <laughs> I was devastated. And he told me later on that he was hanging out in the club and just heard an announcement. I had heard it on the radio and came down to the club, but he was already there hanging out. And his friend said, why don't you get up and, uh, and do a little stuff? And so uh, the girl screamed for him. He looked like Prince back in the day. I mean, I ain't gonna take nothing away from him, back, but these right, were, right. you know, basically were, were really prepared. But anyway, Curtis Blow was the judge that night. All right. Things happen along my life to show me that I'm walking on the yellow brick road. This there you was go. Curtis Blow, who was I admired, uh, was the judge. And he was an anomaly at the time. Because mm. in the early days of hip hop, groups ruled. Groups. Yeah. All New yeah, York groups. First solo record deal, right? You see what I'm saying? For someone to emerge as a solo rapper was an anomaly at that time. Yeah. But for me, who had tried to put together a group and couldn't find no other rappers, <laughs> I said, damn, I could be like Curtis Blow, who I went to saw in 1980 when uh, Uncle Jim's army brought him out here. I said, yeah, I could just go solo like that. So he was the one who was friends now. But he was the one who set the stage for me to emerge as a solo rapper on the West Coast. Mm. And the next week at the contest, well, the contest was an experiment. KGFJ wanted to know they getting calls to play a lot of this rap music, and they still stuck in R&B and funk, okay? So they were experimenting to see if anybody would come out for two basically unknown rappers Nobody had ever seen one battling each other, and nobody had ever seen a rap battle. <laughs> okay, and the club wanted to know if their DJ, Doc, um, uh, Andre, should play more hip hop or stay with what he was doing, and if since they were a club that served drinks 21 and over, if any people 21 and over who drink 
we'll come out to the club to see the same thing. It's not right. a teenage club, a teenage thing. The club was packed. Wow. It was so packed that when, when, when I lost, the owners of the club said, hey, let's do this again next week. <laughs> <laughs> so That's what right. was the two-week battle? I mean, a one-week battle, one night, turned into a two-week. The next week, I came back, and I went back to my DJ days, which I hadn't done in a long time. And I had wrote lines, because I told you I was already doing rhymes. If the party's over here and the party's over there, everybody in the house say, hell yeah. Now, you might think you've heard that somewhere else. I wrote that, okay? <laughs> and it spread, but I put that one line because neither one of us had any audience participation lines in our rap. Again, we were doing, I'm the fuck, I'm the, the flyers, I'm the baddest, but yeah. blah, blah, blah. That. So at the end of my rap, I said, if the party's over here and the party's over there, everybody in the house say, yeah, yeah. And the club exploded. The roof almost came off. <laughs> okay. And I knew right then, because later, that, that I had something, you know, mixing the DJ thing with the, MC, the audience participation line. Again, all of this sounds ordinary now, but at those times, these were revolutionary events. Anyway, come up out there, but I, I won the second week. Ray, Ray Goodman and Brown and the Fat Back Band were the judges of that. I won, and the guy stepped up and he said, My name is Jeff He's my father, and we started the first rap label in LA. And I was here last week, I wanted to see who was going to win. We think you're pretty good. We'd like to sign you as the first rap artist of Rap is Rap Disco. Okay? So, again, history just being made. While, when you walk into it, you don't really look back down. You see what I'm saying? The first rap label. I really wasn't even hearing what he was saying because I had been doing this for two years for this moment. Yeah. The Ice T, have you spoken to Ice T since? And did Ice T acknowledge yeah, that he took that long? Go hard. It hasn't been released yet. Oh, okay. Another OG story of West Coast Hip Hop. That's how I heard his side of the story. Okay. And uh, so we signed, and we were going to go into the studio and record. I did a solo version, which is on YouTube, uh, Disco Daddy interview video and interview, which is the first rap video, West Coast rap video, and the first West Coast rap record solo. So I was going to do, if my, when we recorded the record, I said, if it's successful, I'm going to do what the East Coast people thought to do it. I'm going to have auditions and find some rappers to produce myself. Okay, so I went to do Magic Johnson's 22nd birthday party at the Variety Arts Center down there. Yeah, wow. again, one more time. Wow. Yeah, Magic Johnson, 20, 22. And he rolled in with with uh, Michael Johnson. They rolled together. Back then, neither one of them was married. And uh, they didn't have the bodyguards wherever they went. So why are you going to with them? The gold Negro. So they strolled in. I'm going to tell the story. Before I tell you, I made Captain Rap my part because I met him there. But but uh, Magic came in with Michael and he had a big glass bowl and he set the bowl on the table. And this is his official party; he's all on the radio. And again, there's no security, nothing like that, just like it would be now. Uh, people came in, but women started lining up for Magic's table all the way out the door downstairs. <laughs> they were all dressed to the nines, and each one would step up to Magic. Say a few words and put their name on this little note thing he had and put it in the glass bowl. 
Okay, at the end of the night, I did a, a wrestling. Oh, wow. Oh, 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 hey, oh, 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 I'm thinking like, that's when it all started, huh? Right to the man. I'm telling you about that's what I'm gonna get to. He, uh, uh, at the end of the night, I did a rap called Shaking and Bacon, because when he's coming down the floor, that's what he used to call it. Magic Showtime, Shaking and Bacon. So, so he liked it, and uh, he grabbed the bowl, and he, they tipped. But then I was wondering, now how are we gonna remember what Amber looks like? Out of 150 different pieces of paper, unless you put a star, you know how brother, I would call this one. See what I'm saying, like that. But he he left. But then 10 years later, when I hear him on TV saying he had AIDS, I knew it wasn't because he was gay. <laughs> I knew how magic rolled. You see what I'm saying? How all of them rolled. This was '81. This yeah. was when he did this. This was when AIDS was just being recognized. Okay. You see what I'm saying? So he had 10 years from 81 and 91 to live that lifestyle, and it crept up on him. Mm-hmm. Bless that brother, because whatever they given him, it worked. You see what I'm saying? Because it killed everybody else off, and I remember crying. I never thought something like this would happen to me. And that's one of the moments I broke down myself, because he biggest star in the universe at the time and something like that brought him down but then I remembered that incident 10 years before you see what I'm saying but anyway I always throw that story in but anyway this guy stepped up to me after the show and he said wow man I was dope he said I rap a little bit I said yeah what's what's your name said Larry Glenn I said well I'm having auditions at my house you gotta excuse me it's just blowing up if I close it up, I get happy. Anyway, he said, um, uh, I said, come to my house. I'm having an audition next week, and I want to produce some rappers. He came. The brother was so dope that I called Duffy, and I said, Duffy, I want to change this from Disco Daddy to Disco Daddy. And I asked you, I said, what you going to call yourself? He said, well, I was running a lot of captains. I was in the Air Force. I said, I'm an Air Force veteran, too. He said, well, I'm going to call myself Captain Rap. <laughs> we thought of his name right there in my living Okay, so I said, I want to change it to Disco Daddy, from Disco Daddy, Disco Daddy, and Captain Rep. And Duffy Tripp, he said, you sure about this Disco? We signed you. I said, man, when you hear this, brother, you'll understand. Plus, I was going through a thing where when you write a rap, it's not like a song. You got to memorize that sucker. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and everything else, and if you write two or three of them, You've got a memory thing to go through. You know what I'm saying? Live constantly is no problem. I realized, first of all, two things. I'm from a theater background. That two bad motherfuckers on stage can work the stage. You know what I'm saying? Work this in, work that in. Do crossovers. You know what I'm saying? Ladies like this guy. Ladies, you know what I'm saying? You can work an audience much better. You know what I'm saying? Takes the weight off you because he got to write his half of the song. Okay, <laughs> so, so it solved two immediate problems. And my ego wasn't such that I got to be, to be the star. I don't want nobody else to say. See what I'm saying? I'm thinking right, yeah. that this is three years before there was a run BFC or mm-hmm. any duo rappers right, that I knew right. of that had a record out. Captain Disco Daddy and Captain Rap were the first hip hop duo, East Coast or West, to get to get, make it to the radio. Now they had duos and trios and stuff back east. 
but not on the radio. Some of them just did pop jams, some of them were famous. Yeah, yeah. You see what I'm saying? But as far as recording artists, until Run DMC came along, there was no duo that I know of that existed in hip hop. So so that gave us that distinction right there. The first time people seeing two guys on the stage working at things. Even Grandmaster Flash and, and uh, Hurt, they had three to four MCs. Yeah, that's see right. what I'm saying is it's much different, and they weren't they were MCs as part of the unit with the DJ. Now, they weren't me, a standalone recording group. Let me ask you this: When did you write Zodiac Rhymes? And the reason why okay. I'm asking, right? The reason why I'm asking, because I listened to that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I heard to the windows, to the walls. That was stolen from me by Lil John. Yo! I wrote that song in 1981. He was a little boy, but he was a DJ, and he had access to records. You see what I'm saying? I used that that line in not only Zodiac Rhymes, but if you listen to the duo version of Gigolo uh, Rap, that right. me and, and Captain Rap to the windows, to the walls, to the sweat roll down to the walls, to the windows. And then in Zodiac Rhymes, I used it for one of the Zodiac, because each Zodiac kind had something to say. I said, like, all the Scorpios in the house, if you're ready to rock, then, you know, then let it out. But I don't know, to the windows, to the walls, to the sweat roll down to the door. The little John, which I, I can probably still sue him, he took those lines <laughs> and that his, and his Mr. Mike, let me tell you something. That's exactly where I was going. I was like, hold on. This came out in... in Decades ago, yeah, right. here is Lil John is going across the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you see what I'm saying. So I had wow. influence in hip hop way before I was even credited with, with things like that. So and then not only that, um, it's like this, y'all, and like that. I said it's getting too hot to kick back. Uh, that's in my jiggle uh, rap. Like this, y'all, like that. I said it's getting too hot to kick back. Ten years later, here come a guy named Snoop Dogg. It's like this and like that and like this and that. It's like this and like that and like this and that. Okay. <laughs> so you have to, you know, and Captain Rapper from Long Beach, same place, stupid. You know, my partner okay. from Long Beach. So, so later, after our record, Captain Rap in 83, uh, we broke up the group because our master was sold to a slime ball who didn't want to pay us. And uh, yeah, so we broke the group up and Captain Rock moved to Colorado, but Cletus Anderson, who owned the VIP record chain, he brought him back out here. Uh, Rich Kason had died, and he had this track. He said, I'm going to sit down track. I want to do something with it. So he brought Captain Rap out here. I gave up the music business. I started the L.A. Breakers and was on a whole another trip with mm-hmm. stars like Johnny Carson, uh, mm-hmm. Dick Clark, and stuff like that, uh, supporting. the official Breakers from McDonald's, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, LA Breakers became the official uh, uh, breakdance group for McDonald's, Adidas, K Day, yeah. and the LA Lakers. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so so that was after the recording for me. But but um, I, 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 Joey Jefferson was the guy's name. And so I recorded one song with him because I'm thinking, shit, if I have a, a hit record, I can get away from this cat. Back then, we couldn't afford entertainment attorneys. See what mm. I'm saying? So you were at the mercy of people who had your master. So I recorded Zodiac Rhymes and forgot about it until 2012 when I saw it on on um, the internet. Okay. On YouTube. See on YouTube? On YouTube, and it's the first and only song that hits, because there have been Zodiac songs, but none like mine, because I have something for every, I rap about each sign, and at the end of each rap, they have something that they say 
a party chant that they do, right, right. which is different. See what I'm saying? It could be a hit today. You see what I'm saying? Because I wrote it thinking everybody got a Zodiac song. I had to come up with something that was universal, that would cross over. You see what I'm saying? So Zodiac Rhymes was perfect, but it's just that the slime ball recorded it, and I didn't want to have nothing else to do with it. So, Who's the slime ball? Who's the slime yeah. ball? His name is Joey Jefferson. He owned Jazz City Records at the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and he had a blues label. See what I'm saying? The hip-hop was so new, and Duffy was a good friend, and he did start the label, first label, and got me out there, but he didn't have any money to print records up. If Cletus uh, Anderson, right, if Cletus Anderson hadn't come in who owned VIP record chain and saved him, he saved West Coast hip-hop. We had a record out, the first West Coast record on the air, and people was going to the record shops and couldn't find it because it wow. wasn't there. Yeah, that was a hell of a situation to be in. You see what I'm saying? The first West Coast rap record, nobody could buy your record. So Cletus went in and gave Duffy money to do that, and eventually that problem was solved. But going in the studio, I said, there's an albatross around my neck. They're not going to play a record anywhere because we're from the West Coast. They don't even play West Coast rappers on the West Coast. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? When I brought my record to Ray, to uh, KGFJ, I luckily had some, you know, that's Disco Daddy. I recorded a commercial that I did for y'all. This is you know, for the workshop disco. I recorded that at KGFJ. Mm. They do Disco Daddy. And then when I was rapping, I beat Ice T at the Carolina West. That was produced by KGFJ. Okay. So here I am showing up with a record a month later. That's the beat nice. Well, oh yeah, I guess he did. Guy called himself Trey. Okay, a year later, after uh, he'd been out there for a while, he changed his name from Trey to Ice T. So I didn't Ice T by name. I beat Trey, the guy he was before he changed his name. Ice cream, iced tea. Ice tea. That was the beginning. That night he won, but he heard his floating judge, he will tell you, was the beginning of his career. The night he won Disco Daddy. Okay, at the Carolina West. It's on his uh, Art of Rap video. I'm sorry, I was going to ask you, how important is it to be um, first? Because you have a lot of firsts under your belt, but um, I kind of feel like a lot of times when you first, you kind of you got to be the person who take the bumps and bruises, right? Because and a lot of yeah, a lot you think of, about the evolution. Out, you know, what I'm well, you can record a record, but they ain't gonna play it. You from the West Coast. <laughs> yeah. That was the albatross. What I'm telling you. So when I went to KGFJ, I went in, and two days later, Tyrone Boogie Nelson he called me at home, and he said, "Mike, turn your radio on." I never tell you what that feels like. <laughs> only a few people, many recording artists in the world, only a few of them really experience that first time when you turn on the radio and you know hundreds of thousands of people are hearing your song. Okay? All those two years and stuff that I've invested in myself, quitting my job, but they, they thought I was crazy, to get to focus on this rap thing paid off. You see what I'm saying? Which goes back to my soul saying, Dave. That's what says on the show. I just be you in the right place. Right time. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? So everything unfolded from there. And including the LA Breakers, which is, again, after I broke up the group a year later, I was depressed for a year, but then I watched 
produced in 83 at New York City Breakers, the dance of President Ronald Reagan at the White House. <laughs> <laughs> at the White House. So I turned to my lady, I said, Kim, there ain't no L.A. Breakers. She said, oh, God, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to make it happen. Yeah, but I went up to Hollywood, and they had a spot on Hollywood and Vine. They still dance out there on the street. And I told them I'm starting a group called the L.A. Breakers. Um, we're going to be the first organized group. So they brought people. I got a dance studio from a friend of mine named Al Sand, who my drama instructor in New York. He had moved out here. He had a studio in Hollywood, and he had a dance studio. So I was able to audition dancers at a dance studio, and everything was legit. Then I spent all night just before Christmas, 80, 83, calling Convert, Nike, Adidas. Only Adidas called back. Angelo Anastasio, who used to play with the Rangers, played with Pele, the legend. He became an Adidas representative in his later career. And he came down to Inner City Culture Center, saw all these multicultural. I had Filipinos, Black, Chinese, Mexican, whatever you want, white, break dancers. He said, tell you guys they had fit break dance company for Adidas. And they had an Adidas store in Century City, and we would go up there and get fresh shoes and jackets and a high-end <laughs> shit for free whenever we wanted to. Okay? <laughs> we did uh, Jerry Lewis Telethon. We were on Telethon. We were doing big TV shows. And Adidas, the, the Adidas rep said, when you do these shows, you got to have on fresh and stuff. You got to get some of that 20 pairs. You sponsor, baby. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, so it basically, that happened because of the bad situation I got in with Joey Jefferson and Jazz City. Uh, the L.A. Breakers actually blew up bigger because, again, wherever we appeared, nobody had seen the breakdancers. Did, did Joey Jefferson ever make it right with y'all, though? No, no, he's a slime <laughs> ball to this day. I hope he's <laughs> yeah, he's a slime ball to this day. And Captain Rap had taken a pistol. Oh, he just thought better of it. We had got to such a point where, you know, we both had worked hard and he knew how pissed off I was because he knew the background of what I told him how long I've been doing it to try to get a record deal here. Um, and the first thing we associate with, well, second, because Duffy needed money to yeah. keep the record company stable. So he sold the master while we were on the air because it had more value naturally while we were on the air. Then the other part of that, um, I had signed the contract for Captain Rap Dynamical signed with it. And um, it turned out Captain Rap was right because a week later, uh, Jay Lasker, who had become the president of Motown, called me and Captain Rap up to Motown. We were gonna be Motown's first rap group. Wow. History, a lot of people don't won't remember that except Captain Rap, because Jay is dead. But he looked at the contract that I brought up to him, because I know that record companies can buy out from the tracks and things, you know what I'm saying? And they, they feel you're worth it. But they had given me permission, me and Duffy permission, uh, a year earlier to use Rick James' song. And I had been picking up records from Motown, from the promo people for years, and they knew this or that. You see what I'm saying? I was not like a stranger coming in. So when they gave me the right to use the track, they had no rap group and they weren't interested, but they had watched Sylvia Robinson rise and her record company with these 
about things. So I know at some point they said, well, what do we got to lose if we give them this tattoo? It only been out six months. It's rare you get permission to use an artist record. It's the hottest record, hottest record, the hottest artist in the business at that moment was Rick James. They give me permission to use Rick, give it to me, baby. Give it to me, baby, okay. yeah. And Stone City Music, which is uh, Rick James and Joe Beth Publishing gave us the rights, but I had to give up my writer's credits. If you look on the label under Gigolo Rap, it says Rick James. Uh -huh. <laughs> write a note. You see what I'm saying? But to get, in order to get the deal, I had to give up my credit. So he gets okay. the writer's royalties for my record. Okay. Mm -hmm. But again, it's the price you have to pay. And I did it legally. This is before Sampling was even illegal. Right. We're doing it anyway. You see what I'm saying? I said, oh, Duffy, I know I'm going to do this legally and everything. And over in the corner of the label, you see it says a disco daddy concept over on the okay. left hand side. I had to put that in there so that when I saw Rick James was going to get the writer's um, credits, that I had to let people know that this is something disco daddy. You know yeah. what I mean? Whether I ever became famous or not, that this was my, my record. Okay, so they put that on there, and uh, we went ahead, and and, uh, and the rest was history. You know, but there were a lot of things that happened for that to happen. And uh, Captain Rap, when he came back, when they brought him back, he was the first artist with bad times to go Billboard, mm -hmm. West Coast, uh, 29, 26 Billboard. And you know, bad times, these are real bad times, of what you and I feel. It was the West Coast message. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's an interesting story because he, Cletus had brought him out here and they were in the studio getting ready to record. As this wasn't Rick's track wasn't right, so he went out to take a break. And this lady came out and she was talking to him. She said, you know, I managed two uh guys, uh Jimmy Jam and the other one's name is Terry Lewis. They weren't famous, they weren't known at all by anybody but Prince's family. And he said they just left Prince, he had fired them actually. And um, you know, they need some work. So he went back in and talked to uh, Cletus, and Cletus bought him some food and gave him a, I don't know how much it was, it wasn't a whole lot, but they went in and started, you know, boom, 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 boom. Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, the first production that they did when they left the print mm. was Captain Rat, Bad Wow. Okay. And then he, after them, after him, he did, they did Cheryl, Lewis, Cheryl Lynn, what you find now? Yeah. To be oh, real. Flight time. They for flight okay. time, right? Huh? They flight time, flight but that's what they hadn't had that then at the time. They were just Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis doing independent studio work because Prince had fired them. Yeah. You know, they made have made up and everything, but they had to do something to make some money. Yeah. So, so Captain Rap got lucky. They just happened to be at the same studio. See how certain things, see, this is my, goes back to my, I don't know, Anybody believe in God? Anything? Here I am. <laughs> it's a fine thing. Anyway, um, <laughs> the, um, I've lost my train of thought. I was talking about Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Uh, Captain Rap basically got lucky that day. And uh, my belief, yeah, this is what we're leading to, if you don't believe in a God, that there are certain things that are predetermined back at the time you are conceived. It can't be predetermined before you conceive because you're not a soul yet. 
But from the time you conceive your destiny, and you can change it. I mean, you can step out in front of a truck and change your whole destiny. Whatever, you see what I'm saying? Whatever you meant for you to be. But your destiny, as far as I'm concerned, because there's too many things, like you just hear me saying, that lead from one to another. Mm -hmm. You understand? Because it's not just happening that I be in the right place at the right time. Everything led to something else as if this path had been laid out already. I just had to walk it. Well, you see what I'm saying? I could have changed it any time. I could not have gone to the rap contest with Ice T. That wouldn't be a historical record. I might not be standing here because Duffy wouldn't have stepped up out the audience and offered me a record deal. Right. I was just going down there to win fifty dollars. They didn't say nothing about no recording contract or anything. <laughs> I mean, you see what I'm saying? So this was meant to happen. Yeah. It's meant for me to battle Ice T before he was Ice T. And we both trip off that. You see what I'm saying? Because it happened. And both of us are West, we're from the East, so he's from Newark, I'm from New York, from Harlem. And we both end up out here with prominent places and stuff. Back, if he had beat me the second week, he'd have got the recording contract. <laughs> he'd have got the first West Coast record. All the great things that he's done, he would also be the first a lot of people up until they started to see me on the internet thought IC was the beginning of West Coast hip hop. You see what uh, I'm saying? Yeah, you gotta think about yourself. Mm-hmm. You gotta so think about yourself. You're, you're right, the perfect right. example of what the journey what the journey is. Right? Where we're saying people talk about it's not necessarily the end, it's the journey and the route that you take right. to get there. That's exactly. that's a perfect example. So you a legend, a legend, and a pioneer in hip hop. You went from doing music to doing dance to DJing. So you covered all phases of hip hop or something. What what would you have to say to somebody else that was that's trying to trying to do the same? Because, like you said, it, it came to you naturally, and you transitioned through. What do you say? What would you have to say to somebody else that's trying to trying to stay on your grind? Stay on your grind. All the things that I was doing in the early days was to get fifty dollars, winning contests <laughs> or whatever. You see, but I, my raps was getting tight. Mm-hmm. He showed that I did. You know what I'm saying? I learned something. I learned how to manipulate the audience. Again, this is new. There's no book. This is how you do it when you're rapping on stage. How you excite the audience? How do you like? You understand what I'm saying? I'm seeing. Right. It just comes from being on stage and staying on your grind. Believe in yourself is the first right. important thing I would tell you. Believe in yourself. There are people who are not born with talent, who are just born with hate. And they look at you and say, you ain't no different from me. So what you can do this, so what you can do that. But that's where all their energy goes. Your energy should be on you. This damn song. You know what I'm saying? What can make my show better? You know what I'm saying? Should I add some female background? Your mind should be all in that. I had to put the record together in the studio because Gigolo Rap, when we went to record it, none of the musicians had ever recorded a rap record. Okay, mm. so they were telling me, you can't do this. You can't. The engineer was saying, it's too crowded, it's too busy, because I had party people. If you listen to the duo version, I got mm. party people in the back. I got. I learned from that night, the Carolina West party people, people want to say and have a part of the record and sing uh, the lines and the background, <laughs> whatever it is, you know, or the hook. You know what I'm saying? So I had party people, because first I'm a DJ, and I want my records to sound like I'm a DJ at a club rapping. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so I, I was coming from that perspective. But you got to believe in yourself first. But when I was recording the record, I told the engineer, I want this to sound like, I want these people, okay, I want you to bring up the party people after I said, it's too busy, it's too crowded. But that's rap. And it was just so new that once it was finished and they heard the product, first of all, it's, it's too long. So we'll make a part one and put part two on the back side. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you need what I'm saying? That's what they were doing with the disco record. Right. You know what so there were certain things and decisions I made in the studio, which when you hear the record and you see it, it was a result of everything. Captain and Rap can write and rap his ass off, but he told me I've never been in DJ. I've never been on stage before. Man, I'm nervous as hell. You know, at one time we do it our first show, and um, we had lines in there where we say, party, party. So he said, party. And he said, see, they ain't saying nothing. And he said <laughs> that on stage into the microphone. And I had to snatch the microphone and say, Cap, nobody knows that you're making a mistake or, or whatever. <laughs> nobody knows that, you know, you're affected by what's going on out there. Mm -hmm. The thing was that rap was so new at one period that people, when we did shows, did not know whether to dance or whether right. they were standing and watching. They were still brand new. Right. right, right, right. So there was a mixture going on on the floor. So some people heard them say, play party. And it was just a, still a thing where in New York, where they used to, you would have probably got an instant response for party. In LA, they didn't know what they were supposed mm -hmm. to respond. Oh, you see what I'm saying? It was a whole thing, adjustment that had to be made doing that first year that our record was out on the West Coast. First time them seeing the rappers, first time them, them hearing the, the type of rap stuff where you got to participate. But when they found out what they had to do and say, they loved it. This is part of what makes people love hip hop, even in the beginning, that the crowd can take part of it. Whether you're a B-girl or a B-boy dancer, or you just sang in the lyrics and going along with, you know, can't touch it. Um, well, what, what's next, what's next for Disco Daddy? What's next for Disco Daddy? I don't know. I, I got to tell you this, too. Disco Daddy, because of the Motown thing and getting the rights to go, was the first hip-hop artist to ever get permission to use material from the Motown catalog. It was not MC Hammer. <laughs> In fact, he used Rick James, too. Right, you right. Saying, you give right. it to me, baby, right? Yeah. Yeah, see what I'm saying? Yeah. Give it to me, baby, right. But, but, but he wasn't the first. So the the, 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 the uh, thing had been set already where he could go in because Motown knew by then that, hey, we will make money either way. We'll make money licensing the use of the track. You see what I'm saying? Even though MC Hammer was not a Motown artist, selling a million records, they're going to get a big chunk of that. Mm -hmm. See what I'm saying? So there were certain near misses, almost becoming Motown's first uh, rap group. Uh, the future now, I'm doing quite a few different things. Um, with the Soul Train Gang, we formed ourselves into a socially conscious, political, capitalist, socially conscious entertainment entity, where we back uh, candidates, which has got me into the political structure, uh, helped Karen Bass get elected as mayor. Uh, it's a big party for her, Soul Train Party, and I have video of Karen Bass down with the Soul Train Gang on me. Been down like a soul sister with the soul days. Three days before all of you. I created a Shine Award, the Soul Train Gang and Dancers Shine Award, which we give to people 
mostly powerful people because only powerful people in politics make change. You can fill out petitions, you can be ballots, you can vote. Mm-hmm. All of those things go to the congressmen or senators who are listening, supposed to be listening to you, and they make those changes. They write the laws and make the changes. Yeah. So we come right to the top. And I've awarded Karen Bass, Maxine Waters, uh, Sweet Alice Harris, uh, all the councilmen, uh, Marquise Harris, Dorset, Shine Awards, which is uh, given to those individuals or entities been on the grind trying to make this world a better place but ain't been getting that shine see what i'm saying with our soul train identity we bring attention to whoever we award you see what i'm saying it's not just coming from a guy down the block it's coming from the stars of the longest running show in the history of television we now formed a socially conscious group and it helps as a promotional venture it's gotten us inside the political structure so um you're going to hear a lot about pickleball in hip hop, actually, yeah, 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 coming yeah, yeah. out of the West Coast, I started the first uh, pickleball club, and Lonzo uh, from World Class Wrecking Crew, he got at me. We want to start the first hip hop all star pickleball club. There's always new areas to venture into. You see what I'm saying? If you're yeah. creative, you yeah. see what I'm saying. I'm 72 years old. The only thing besides uh, that, that I'm the eldest statesman of hip hop. I'm older than every hip hop artist in hip hop. Including mm. the, the founder, who heard it all of my 10 or 12 years younger. That's because I made my first record at 30 when they were like 19, 18 in New York. Mm. 1981, most of those cats were 18 and 19 years old. I was 30 going on 31. Yeah. So I'm the oldest living with professional hip hop recording artists in the world. Nice. Mm. Mm. Daddy on the West Coast. So yeah, there's still a future. And there's still things that I want to do. And <coughs> you're going to be hearing about it. I'm Jeff will have you back here when my pickleball club blows up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> will, will, you, will you be in New York for the 50th anniversary? I'm going to try. Okay. <laughs> but we're trying to do something here. And the council members, I asked them. And he turned to me and said, well, there's something you can be involved in. <laughs> so... I'm trying to work on stuff like that right now. So mm-hmm. I'd love to come there uh, to be part of it, but we'll see how things work out. Because I, I, like I said, I've met most of the people through interviews that I've done when I have my radio program and on Facebook. And a couple of them have come out here. Everybody that comes out here from New York knows they got safe passes with this or daddy. They ain't gonna be shot and killed at no roster trying kicking or something like that. <laughs> because I know every place you're supposed to go and how you're supposed to go. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And they're rolling with me. So so a few of them have come out, tested that, they saw they got here, had a good time, got home safe. See what I'm saying? So I expect the same respect when I come out here. But I don't know if I'm gonna physically be able to make it because okay. the sun will be sort of busy here too. But I yeah. may. So up in the air right now. Ladies and gentlemen. Um, you're, you're, you're familiar with DJ Breakout, which is my OG, and um, DJ Dr. Dust, which is my OG. Actually, DJ what? Dr. Dust taught me how to mix. Dust mm. the mixologist? Mixologist, that's I, right. I interviewed him, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've interviewed him, and I interviewed um, uh, DXT. Okay. Oh. And they had a, he had an interesting tape. In fact, some of the brothers that I interviewed had instant take on who was the first to use the turntable as an instrument. You know what I'm saying? Because I said, well, I, I had heard about Grandmaster Blast, but then Dust 
mixologist was telling me, you know, that he did a lot of things that have never been said before. And DSP said he was the first to turntable as instrument. And then when Grandmaster Cash came out here, I asked him, I said, yeah, <laughs> and I, and uh, I want to know from you, because you were there, who was the first to actually use the turntable as an instrument? And all he said, well, I'll tell you this. It's one thing to have something that you invented to use it in your garage, but another thing when you bring it out to people see. <laughs> so whoever it was that came out first to the people and made that popular, that's who's getting the credit for that. Although the others still, you know what I'm saying? They're, they're, they're icons, you see what I'm saying? But they, among themselves, they said I actually recorded. In fact, I, I interviewed Chief Rocker Busy B. And he told me that some of the songs that Curtis Blow is credited, he had the hand in writing. Yeah, I, I, I heard that. All right, not getting credit for it. So there's a lot of hidden stories in hip hop that hopefully if these guys write books, because the New York timeline is really hard to figure out because they're finding out that because there was no internet, whatever they was doing in Brooklyn, they didn't know what they were doing in the Bronx unless you travel from one park dam to another. Yeah. And going to New York, I'm from New York, you see party where you from. Right. In the park that's around you. You didn't go out to Brooklyn from us. You meet somebody. So they don't know. I, then I heard about DJ Smokey in Brooklyn and other people from Raheem who were doing things before Flash. And um and uh DJ um Oh Cool Herc, man, Bottom. Oh not Cool Herc, the disco DJ who's dead. AJ the DJ. Oh, okay. AJ the DJ. They, these are guys who were DJs who never, they were disco DJs, just like me, coming in in the beginning era of hip hop. You see right. what I'm saying? But a lot was, 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 they were influential at the time from what I heard. You see what I'm saying? And what they were doing. But then naturally one dies. And so you you don't you don't hear about Smokey. He died early. You yeah. know what I'm saying? But if he's still been living, he probably would have a place in the early if he does have a place among those who know, but in the official accounts that I've read so far, you rarely hear anything or read anything about these days. Yeah, usually like that. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in this evening, Disco Daddy. Thank you for uh, for joining the conversation. We appreciate your true hip hip hop historian. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of knowledge. Legend of Pioneer. We'll catch everybody next week. On the next episode, everybody enjoy the rest of their day. Peace out. Peace. Peace. I got to get in here to route smoking. Get me. <laughs>